in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We are in a series called The Church at the Next Level. Uh, Tommy Fountain began us last Sunday with, the, uh, uh, with his message from Luke chapter 6. I'm continuing this with Next Level Authenticity. I uh, am going to stick with the text this morning and the subject. I'm not going to divert to comment on events of this past week, as tragic as they are. Uh, I don't believe people come to church to hear what the pastor has to say in his social commentary. I would rather think through and pray through and gather facts before I address anything like that uh, with the events in Louisiana, Missouri, and in Texas this past week and events that have actually unfolded even this weekend. But I will say to you, my disposition is more to look for solutions than to cast blame. And I am certain that the application of this passage in Luke chapter 9 will solve every problem America has. I'm convinced of it. Jesus Christ is the hope and the solution to every challenge before us. And that's what we find here in this text. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we live in a different day, even than the day in which I grew up and came up in. And those of you that are in your ninth decade, in your 80s, and some of you in your 70s, will recall that you have heard statements just like that your entire life. Things aren't the way they used to be. Things have unfolded and things have developed, uh, especially since World War II, that have made it more of a challenge to follow Christ in this day than it was in previous days. There was a day, even as a kid in a working-class neighborhood in Houston and in a, a middle-class neighborhood in California when I was in junior high and high school, where you could pretty well count on the sentiment of the community to support a basic general Christian viewpoint, uh, uh, at least of behavior, if not theology. Those days in many ways are gone across the nation. We really cannot rely upon that as much as we once did. I don't mean to imply that that is gone, but things are different. And in response to that, the church is not to whine or complain. Got to be honest. We've got to grab current reality uh, with everything we've got, but we don't whine and complain. We point towards solutions and we follow Jesus through it all. There are actually New Testament commentators who believe that the day that we're entering in as a nation, and they would apply this to Europe as well, is a day that is more similar to the context of the first century church than what we have lived in and what we've grown up with heretofore. That we are entering into a day that the apostles and the early Christians faced in the first century, and we can expect the Word of God to become more alive and for the power of the Spirit to be more present because God is always into meeting the need of His people where they are. And that's what we can anticipate and that's what we can expect from God. Uh, we need to step up then to the next level. We need to do it because of retrospect. Since World War II, the nation has been on a slow uh, and sometimes rapid decline and departure from the Christian mind and the Christian ethic. Much of this is rooted in theological liberalism. We've lost large portions of the Christian church, and instead of standing with the Word of Jesus Christ, there are actually men and women of the cloth who are opposing the Word of Jesus Christ. 
And if you keep it with your papers and the back sections of the paper or on some of the more obscure sites on the internet, uh, on, on reliable news sources, that is, some of the more obscure sites on um, news sites, reliable news sites, you'll find that to be the case. But the trajectory has been since World War II, for 70 years now, a departure. Now that leads me to prospect, what we face in the future. I don't expect this to get much better. Most nations, when they put into their structures, especially their legal structures, departure from the Christian faith and guarding the political and legal structure from that, they usually don't recover from that. They usually don't. That does not mean, however... That does not mean that the private citizen has to succumb, surrender, or submit to that. What we need to do is what we find here in the text, and I've got to tell you right here and right now, it isn't easy and it never has been. Authentic Christianity has never been an easy thing. G.K. Chesterton commented on this one time. He says, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. He said, it's been found to be difficult and left untried. And I think he's right. Here in the text, Jesus defines authentic Christianity. And may I say to you, Jesus Christ is the only one with the right to defend authentic Christianity. No preacher, no council, no church, no denomination, no individual, no interest group within the confines of churches, and certainly none of the structures or individuals outside the churches has any business offering up a substitute or alternative definition of Christianity other than Jesus. There are some that want to approach Jesus and say, Jesus, let me shape you with my ritual. There are some who come to Jesus and say, Jesus, let me control you with my tradition." Or, Jesus, let me obscure you with my opinion. And dear sweet church, and to all those that will listen, Jesus Christ will have none of it. Jesus alone defines the Christian faith, and no one has a right to propose an alternative definition. Now, that doesn't stop some of them, does it? But you must understand, any definition or orientation of the Christian faith other than the one delivered by Jesus Christ is not only an alternative, but is demonic and faith and ultimately ruinous. And so there is a sense in which the people of God have got to oppose alternatives with a Christ-like spirit, obviously, but with vigor and intensity, and Jesus did so even to the extent of giving up his life in death for it. So Jesus defines the essence of the Christian faith beginning in verse 23. And then he said to them all, all of them, this wasn't merely an internal message, this was external as well. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you the truth, truly, 
There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. We can go to the next level as a church family and as individuals when we go to next level authenticity. When we define our life in Jesus Christ by His own terms. So what does an authentic Christian look like? Well, there are a few things that arise from the text. And the first is this. The authentic Christian chooses sacrifice over self. I remember when I was a senior in high school, my pastor and our youth director gathered us together with some of the older, more mature members in our congregation. And we had a fellowship after a Sunday evening service. And the way the meeting was arranged is that we sat around tables and the older members were to share with us answers to some questions posed by the pastor and the youth director. And one of those questions happened to be, what has been through the years your biggest hindrance to following Christ? And there was a common theme that arose amongst them all. I was expecting to hear the world was the biggest hindrance. And for some that was the case. I was expecting to hear a variety of other things, expectations at work, busyness of schedule. But what they said, what was common amongst almost all of the seniors who commented on that question, was self. Their largest difficulty was not their family, so, though some of them faced some persecution and ridicule, even in their own families, to following Christ. Their biggest difficulty really didn't have to be their, happened to be their work schedule. That their biggest difficulty did not even happen to be friends. Their biggest difficulty over the decades of following Jesus Christ happened to be self. And that put me on the alert immediately to look out for myself. And I have to tell you, I, I've been trying to follow Jesus since 1982, uh, April of that year, and I've got to agree with them. My biggest difficulty and challenge in following Jesus Christ is myself. I get in my way more than any other obstacle. And really, compared to all the other obstacles, those other obstacles aren't big obstacles, not nearly as big as I am. Well, you know, I, I think Jesus anticipated that. In verse 23, look what he says. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus implied this in three different ways. He talks about the self, in three different ways here. There, there is self-denial. He said, if you're really going to come after me and follow me, which is the essence of the faith, you've got to engage in self-denial. So when there's a conflict between what you want and what Jesus wants, the authentic Christian sets aside self every time. And Jesus really used some intense words to describe this later in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Now, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, and like a lot of teachers, he'd overstate the case to make a point. Uh, for example, he would say, um, uh, if, if your right eye causes you to sin, do what with it? Pluck it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, what do you do with it? Cut it off. Well, did he want you to mutilate yourself? Well, well of course not. He's overstating the case to make a point. Do whatever it takes to be victorious over sin. Well, that's what he does in Luke 14, 26. He said, if you do not hate yourself, you cannot come after me. Well, the truth is, Jesus wants us to affirm the fact that God created us and state that that's good, but he's overstating the case to make the point. 
And that is, do whatever it takes to get yourself out of the way when you conflict with Jesus Christ and His will. So we've got to engage in self-denial. But there's also self-death. And he says to do it daily, so obviously it's figurative. You can't kill yourself every day. He said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, what? When? Daily. Take up his cross daily. Um, Now this was a distasteful thing in the first century. It would like being wearing a necklace with a gas chamber around your neck on a daily basis. It would be like wearing an electric chair. Jesus says, take up your electric chair. Take up your gas chamber. Take up your lethal injection on a daily basis. In other words, Jesus is being very real about our tendencies and about our heart and soul. If we're going to follow Him, you're going to find it necessary to crucify self on a daily basis. Self is vigorous. Self is vehement. Self is relentless. Self is mischievous. And Jesus said, it's just a real thing. Don't get discouraged about it. Just accept it as real. You're going to have to oppose yourself often to genuinely follow Him. Now, A.W. Tozer said this about putting ourselves to death on a daily basis, figuratively speaking. He said, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a crown, or a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Uh, Of course, today we want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king is what we do, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. And how true that is. So you can either be on the throne or you can be on the cross, but you can't be both. And our place is on a cross on a daily basis. So self-denial, self-death, and then self-demotion. He says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, in the first century, disciples would attach themselves to a rabbi. And they would dress like the rabbi. They would practice even the hand mannerisms and the intonation when uh, teaching like the rabbi, they would attempt to do everything like a rabbi. It's like my baseball coach in the 70s. I admired him so much. I wore coaches' shorts and jerseys just like he did into the 90s. I was wanting the 70s to get into the 90s because I wanted to be just like Bragg Stockton, uh, the um, uh, baseball coach, University of Houston. And so that's what disciples would do. They would take on the dress, the intonation, the vocabulary, the mannerisms, and especially the concepts of their rabbi. And Jesus is saying, you've got to do that with me. Follow me. Follow me. Don't lead me with your opinion. Don't shape me with your ritual. Don't control me with your tradition. Don't obscure me with unbiblical concepts but exalt me by following me. And beloved, this is precisely what Jesus did. Jesus is not asking for something He's not done Himself. Jesus Christ went to the cross, not for the honorable, but Jesus went to the cross for sinners. And in that way, God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the extent to which Jesus Christ went. And so if we've got a choice... If we have to make a choice between sleep and getting up early to seek God in prayer and vigorously in His Word, what do we choose? 
If, if we have a choice between reckless, careless, unnecessary spending and giving, what do we choose? If, if we have the choice between restraining ourselves or creating chaos with a few additional words, what do we choose? Well, it's very clear what we do. And that is, we deny self, we put self to death, and we demote self. We can be authentic when we relegate the secondary importance, our self, and elevate Jesus Christ to first importance. We can be authentically Christian when it's no longer important that we are satisfied, but extremely important that Jesus is satisfied. And that's authentic Christianity. Sacrifice over self. But there's a second thing. And that is, authentic Christianity or the authentic Christian chooses eternity over the present. And look what he said in verse 24 and 25. In verse 24, he says, Choose eternity over the present because of eternal repercussions. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. If he chooses to save his life, he is going to lose it. In other words, if you play it safe and turn away from Christ, if you avoid Jesus Christ because you want to play it safe, you're actually backfiring upon yourself. There's a repercussion to that. Ultimately, what you're doing is that you're ruining yourself and losing your life. The risk must be taken for Christ. In other words, the ordinary way of safety in this world and the next is actually the way to ruin is what Jesus is saying here. And he goes on and makes that clear. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The one who takes what appears to be a risk for me is taking no risk at all. Uh, Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Ancas in Ecuador, uh, said before leaving as a 20-year-old, wrote in his journal, in fact, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, there's some things you cannot keep no matter how intensely you clutch to them. And Jesus is just saying, contrary to much of the world, give it up anyway. And you cannot lose what He promises to deliver upon. So you're not a fool when you give up what you can't keep anyway to gain what you cannot lose. And so Jesus says to choose eternity over the present because of eternal repercussions, but then because of eternal reward. Verse 25, he uses a financial term here in verse 25 that you'll recognize. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? If he gains what's temporary and loses what is eternal, what profit is it? William Law, the Puritan author, said, If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you've chosen instead. Authentic Christianity has a laser focus on eternal values and what will be most important in eternity. And authentic Christianity, therefore, is willing to suffer and endure stress and anxiety temporarily for the eternal gain. But too much of the world is the other way around. Authentic Christianity, then, chooses eternity over the present. Now, why is that? Because eternity is longer than this life. Now, I know I just set a record for understatement, but we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're going to be alive. We're going to deal more with more issues and more existence 
on the other side of the grave than we ever did on this side of the grave. That's the nature of eternity. So the most pressing issues are not on this side of the grave, but they are on the other side. And so we can live an authentic Christian life when we evaluate everything on the basis of eternity. Folks, this is not complicated. Jesus is really inviting us here to engage in a cost-benefit analysis. What you're pouring your life out for, is it really worth it? Viewed from eternity. Is it really all that important? The striving and the gaining and the emotional crunching and the mental involvement and all the issues, that the, the time commitment, even the financial commitment, to the things that we give ourselves to, when viewed from the perspective of eternity, let's do a cost-benefit analysis. Is it really that important? Are you getting out of it? Will you get out of it in eternity? What you're paying for it now. And that's why Jesus endured the cross in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The text says, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. In other words, Jesus saw while dying on the cross, enormous joy set before him. The joy of redeeming believers. The, the joy of a kingdom. The joy of bringing grace and forgiveness and making it possible for the world. That joy. And so the nails in his hands and feet were something he could endure, endure for six hours because of the joy that was set before him. Authentic Christianity has that kind of mindset. I read uh, not too long ago uh, one of the latest editions of the Guinness Book of World Records. And did you know the largest ball of string in the world made by a community is 11 feet in diameter and by an individual is 12 feet in diameter? That much string or twine. And I read that and I said, that, I, I said two things about it. One, that took a lot of work, discipline, and attention to gather string and to develop a ball of string by a community 11 foot in diameter and by an individual 12 foot in diameter. That was the first thing I said. It took a lot of discipline. Number two, I said, so what? What a silly thing to engage in if it means you've got to neglect important issues in life. And ladies and gentlemen, We've got to be the kind of people who do not merely gather string to build a ball of twine, figuratively speaking. We've got to be the kind of people that invest our lives and our resources and everything we have into something that will be eternal. And by the way, there are only two things that will make it from this life into eternity. Only two things. Number one, people. People are the only one of two things that will make it into eternity. And the second is the Word of God. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will not pass away. And so investing in people's walk with Jesus Christ and investing in the expansion and distribution of the good news of God's Word are two of the broad areas we've got to master if we're going to be authentically Christian. So the authentic Christian chooses eternity over the present and sacrifice over self. But there's a third thing, and that is the authentic Christian chooses Christ over the world. Now, I have a couple of talents I haven't unveiled to you that I want you to know about, and I don't mean to brag, but I'm a very good race car driver. And I'm an excellent hunter of Cape Buffalo. 
I'm a very good race car driver with video games in Cape Buffalo in an arcade in a mall. It's marvelous. And, and I've got a certain strategy for driving race cars and video games. I don't look at the car, I look down the road and begin to make my turn far earlier. And since I've done that, I've been smoking everybody. And then I do so well in the arcade hunting Cape Buffalo with the machine that's about half the size of the organ that there's a voice that comes to me and says, Ooh, you are a mighty warrior and hunter. <laughs> now, isn't that about the silliest thing you've heard today? That I'm a race car driver and an excellent Cape Buffalo hunter. I cannot claim to be a race car driver, unless I get outside the home where the video game is and actually get on the track in a car. I've got to get outside the building. I'm not a hunter until I get outside the building into the field and actually hunt. And the same is true when it comes to the Christian faith. Real Christianity gets outside the building into the world and elevates Jesus Christ and His Word and is unashamed. And that's what Jesus has in mind here. In verses 26 and 27, look what he said. In verse 26, he says, Put me over the world because of contempt. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... And by the way, have you noticed there's no way to take off the rough edges of some of the things Jesus said. But this is the Word of God. This is the Word of Him who came from heaven to the earth. This is how He said things. Whoever's ashamed of me in my words, of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. There is, uh, glory is uh, presented in three parts here, of the Son, the Father, and angels. And anyone ashamed will experience divine contempt so Jesus will hide His glory from those who hide His Word. Hide His Word, He hides His glory. There's no way to take off the rough edges of that. Jesus is ashamed of those who are ashamed of Him. Those who love conformity will miss the glory. So because of contempt, put Christ over the world, but then because of contrast. Look at verse 27. Now, commentators go 10,000 different directions with this verse. They really shouldn't because the next number of verses amplifies it. But he says in verse 27, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death, die, until they see the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God has not come fully, but all of these people are dead. What does Jesus mean? Well, Jesus oftentimes gave a miniature preview of the kingdom every time He healed the sick or raised the dead or cast out demons. And that's what He does in the next verse with one of the most splendid, marvelous stories in all the Gospels. Peter picks up on it in 2 Peter 1. Look what happened. He said, you'll not taste death, some of you, until you see the kingdom of God, and then He shows them the kingdom of God, beginning in verse 28. Now, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, that he took Peter, James, and, uh, Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses 
and Elijah, who appeared, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, that's just like Peter, isn't it? He doesn't know what to say, so he says something. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. So Jesus unveils the kingdom there and shows them the definition of the kingdom. All the Bible is replete with this theme from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus Christ is king, and He's going to bring the kind of kingdom you would expect Him to bring. Uh, Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11. In fact, I want you to look at the picture on the screen that shows an emblem of what Jesus will bring one day. Now, that's a peaceful setting, but it's not something we find in our world. Look, look what you see there. What's unusual about that? Lambs don't usually hang out with lions. But when Jesus Christ returns, the prophets say that Jesus Christ will bring a kingdom where there is so much peace and harmony throughout the world that not only will humans of the earth dwell in peace, but even the animal kingdom will be such where the lion will lay down with the lamb. And, and the text goes on to say in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11 that children will be able to play with snakes. Listen to me, sweet people. The world isn't doing this. We as a nation, just our nation alone, have spent trillions of dollars trying to advance this kind of nation. And instead of getting better, we've gotten what? We have poured thousands and perhaps millions of work hours into producing peace. And instead of getting better, we've gotten worse. The world is not offering this. The world can't deliver it. That's not to say we should not labor, but we've got to labor under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And even then, even then, the full coming kingdom will not be realized until Jesus Christ returns. And you want to tell me you're going to be embarrassed about the word of Jesus Christ in front of a world that's tearing it up? What kind of thinking is that? He is going to produce this. The scripture says he is the desire of all the nations. And so it comes as no surprise that Jesus says what he says here. What is a surprise is that more are not public with his word. When authentic Christians are forced to make a choice between Christ and the world, speaking up for Christ or silently 
departing, they choose Christ. They are more awed and more impressed with King Jesus than mere creatures. And they do not believe this world has anything over Christ. And they're willing to stand long and they're willing to stand alone with Jesus because He's bringing something the popular crowd can never bring. And that is a kingdom that eliminates evil and establishes righteousness forever and forever and forever. And can't somebody say something on His behalf? In public? In public. That may be why the hymn writer writer wrote, The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Let me summarize authentic Christianity with just a simple statement. And a few words from Vance Habner. The authentic Christian essentially says, with all of this in mind, whatever is important to Jesus is now important to me. And I'm going to battle myself to keep it out of the way. I'm going to give myself to things that last for eternity. And I'm going to be public in my witness for Jesus Christ. What's important to me is important to Him. What's important to Him is important to me. And is it? Heinz Habner commented on this one time with a very scathing statement. He said, We have too many casual Christians who dabble in everything but are not committed to anything. We have a nodding acquaintance. With the, score of, with the score of subjects, but are sold on nothing. Of course I'm interested in church, but with my club and my lodge and my golf and my bridge and my stamp collection, my ceramics, my African violets, I just can't get very excited about religion. Let me clarify, by the way. We're not selling religion here. Don't be confused. We're calling the world to a person, Jesus Christ. But then Havner goes on, Our Lord had no place in this program for casual disciples. It was all or nothing. And that's what we're calling you to today, to make that decision. All or nothing. Gently, I, I, I want to say, if you're not going to give everything to Jesus, would you please not claim to be a Christian? And you keep coming here. You keep learning. That's fine. But if you're not going to give all to Jesus, you may not want to tell anybody. Give all to Him. If you failed, we all know there's grace. Peter, in fact, the leading preacher on the first day of the church in Acts 2, Did you know that he denied Jesus three times after swearing allegiance to him? And yet the Lord met him by the Sea of Tiberias and forgave him, and he can forgive you too, and transformed him and made him the powerful preacher whose sermon was so anointed by the Holy Spirit, it launched now 2,000 years of Christian history. That's what happened. Of course, they prayed 10 days. Peter preached 10 minutes. Many people wish I'd do that. Um, and, and that was the effect 
of his message. You can be the next Peter. You can be the next one. If you will trust the grace of God, discard anything that keeps you from following Christ. Set it aside. Reject it. Discard it. And then come collect on the promises of God like you would your nutrition needs from a pantry or from a refrigerator. God has a storehouse full of grace. And Jesus earned it when He died on the cross and rose again from the dead. This is your day. It's a day for a change. It's a day for a new life. It's a day for a new way. Come now and give your all to Jesus Christ. Would you stand and let's pray together about it. Our Lord, we want to thank you for the clarity of your word and that on the most important issues, you have made things very, very clear. And we thank you. You have not been nebulous or strange in the way that you've spoken about eternal matters, about the most important matters even in this life. But you've magnified truth and you weren't afraid of anybody. And for that we are very grateful. We now know in broad terms the commitment that we've got to make to make it right with you and right on the other side. But Lord, oftentimes we've let self get in the way. In fact, so much of our world has taught us to please ourselves, to exalt ourselves, to pursue ourselves. And what a slavery that has been. There is certainly no satisfaction in that, and there's certainly none of you in that. We thank you today we can abandon self and take care of your business because we can trust you'll take care of our business. You've got it. And we thank you. Lord, we've, we've let present thoughts and present commitments take precedence over eternity as well. Help us to wise up, to sober up, get past that intoxicated thinking, being too impressed with this world. And then, Lord, there's no elegant way to say it. Some of us have just been flat-out cowards. There are people, even people close to us, that don't know we belong to Jesus and that we believe every word He said that we adore Him. We want to pray, O oh God, that You would show us grace today to follow Jesus Christ on His terms. And whatever changes need to be made in these moments, we pray that You would help us to decide for Him and to say yes to Him. And as you keep talking to God, we're going to sing, and our staff will be here in the front. And as we sing... We want to help you. And this is your time to get some spiritual help. We'll pray with you. Perhaps you're ready to make a decision and make it public. Maybe you need to receive Christ, make that decision to follow Him. Maybe you need to become part of Beach Haven. You need a body of members to stand with you. You meet the terms of Christ, you come. You're welcomed here. Maybe you've got some other prayer need. But this is your time to decide for Him. I'm going to finish my prayer. Tim's going to lead us to sing. And then we're going to offer you all the help that you need so that you can come.
Lord, thank you. And please gather for the name of Christ all the glory you intended for this service to give him in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing these words and mean it.